I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Some of the most important time we spend with our families is around the dinner table. We share our day. We connect. We create memories. And that's easier to do if you're not actually spending your time worrying about making dinner. Gobble gets that. It is a meal prep service that makes quick and easy, nutritious, delicious meals. They are 15 minutes or less to prepare. You cannot get delivery faster than that. I know. I have tried. (laughs) And even on your busiest day, you can have a home-cooked meal and quality time with your family. With Gobble, your meal kit is delivered fresh to your doorstop each week. There is no planning, no shopping, no prepping. And that's because Gobble has an army of sous chefs doing all the time-consuming work. They pick out the highest quality ingredients. They peel, they chop, they marinate, create the perfect sauces. So all you need is one pan and 15 minutes. And cleanup is quick and easy. That is why Parents Magazine voted Gobble the number one meal kit. And right now, if you act quickly— I can't believe I'm saying that. But it is true that this offer ends on Friday, May 3rd. You can get a Mother's Day brunch kit, which they sent me, you know, weeks early. So I got to pretend to have Mother's Day, got to pretend to have a reason to have a Mother's Day. Um, And it was delicious, actually. It's pancakes and uh, fruit compote. Uh, It's not something that is terribly um, fancy, but it feels elevated. I think that's true of most gobble meals. They're they're not like, you know, blow your mind away, like, you know, gastronomic molecular, molecular gastronomy, whatever that's called. Um, they're, They're like elevated comfort food. I don't know if they invented that or not, or I just made it up. But anyway, gobble, easy, you should do it. They're offering my listeners six meals for just $36 plus free shipping. You have to go to the special offer URL, which is gobble.com slash friends for six meals for just $36 plus free shipping, gobble.com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. I think that's still appropriate for this week. Hear me out. With Friends Like These is, in many ways, a very selfish project for me. Among other things, it is a very satisfying answer to all the people in my life who have accused me of loving the sound of my own voice. And it is also a pretty transparent vehicle for my own personal growth. I am actively using this show as a way to make myself a better person, a better ally in most cases, and in general, just trying to undo the legacy of white supremacy and patriarchy and heteronormativity and ableism that I continue to benefit from. And a lot of the time when I try to make a connection or lift the voice of someone who's from a non-centered community, I get to experience the pleasure of knowing that I have done a really good thing 
that I'm on the right side of history. But my next guest gave me something that might be more valuable than a merit badge for wokeness. He reminded me that whatever I do to be on the right side of history, there's a limit to what I can understand about that history and about that experience. And there's comedy in that disconnect, but only if I agree that it exists. Coming right up is Damon Young. He is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Very Smart Brothers, a senior editor for The Root and a columnist for GQ. He lives in Pittsburgh with his wife and children, and he has written the book, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. Damon Young, coming right up. Damon, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm so glad you're here. I absolutely... Loved your book. It was it was a it was a quick read, which is not to say it was an easy read. There's some tough stuff in it, but I, I loved reading it, and I, I want to share that with our audience. Would you mind reading a section for us? Okay, this is an excerpt from a chapter called "Living While Black Killed My Mom," which um, I guess the, uh, the the title of that chapter is pretty self-explanatory. I think she might still be alive today if she had been a white woman from Mount Lebanon or Fox Chapel, or Morningside, or Bloomfield, or wherever the fuck upper-middle-class white women are from, instead of a working-class black woman who grew up in a brownstone co-op at the top of a hill on Tilden Street in Barmar Gardens. I am not sure of this. I will never be sure of this. But the thought remains stuck in my mind. Maybe the doctors would have taken her back pain more seriously. Maybe they would have done better tests. Maybe they wouldn't have shoved as many needles and stents inside of her like old business cards and receipts stuffed into an empty shoebox. Maybe they would have paid more attention to her. Maybe they would have tried the thing they didn't try, or recommended a specialist she didn't see, or suggested a diet she didn't take. But maybe, because Mom was a black woman, her discomfort didn't register the same way it would have if her skin were paler and her hair were straighter. Maybe she wouldn't have developed an addiction to nicotine, I am aware that white people are also susceptible to addiction. But they're not as susceptible. Their world isn't as stress-inducing. The myriad things they get addicted to aren't as easily found where they live, aren't as prominently advertised, and the resources to overcome these sicknesses aren't as hard to find. And when addiction does cripple white communities, as it has with the opioid epidemic, they don't get America's fire and fury as black neighborhoods devastated by crack did, they get pillows and 23-minute-long nightline profiles. White privilege, the idea that whiteness, for white Americans, provides an imperishable benefit of the doubt and a flexible and perpetually renewable get-out-of-jail-free card, is often dismissed by critics and even spoken of by believers in it as an abstract and academic term with no basis in reality. But it doesn't exist without the cultural, social, political, and legal reinforcement that white people's feelings, thoughts, desires, and opinions matter more than the feelings, thoughts, desires, and opinions of non-white people, black people specifically. It's not so much that blacks are thought to be subhuman, although that belief festers too. It's that the humanity of whiteness is the only humanity that matters. Their humanity is the standard all other humanities are judged by. The ceaseless homage towards whiteness also affects how physical pain and discomfort are assessed and treated. 
In both East Harlem, New York, and Columbia, South Carolina, today stand statues of iconic Dr. James Marion Sims, colloquially known as the father of modern gynecology. Sims is most famous for inventing the speculum and finding the cure for vaginal fistula, landmark discoveries he made after hundreds of experiments on purchased and borrowed black female slaves. And since Sims either believed black women were unable to experience pain or just didn't give a fuck about it, local anesthesia was never used. He ripped these women open, gashing their vaginas like old newspapers torn and twisted at light charcoal grills. And this motherfucker has statues. Monuments. While this particular grade of gynecological terror no longer exists in America, the feelings behind it and effects of it still linger. In April of 2018, the New York Times published an extensive feature on black maternal mortality, revealing that black women are four times more likely to die from childbirth and other pregnancy-related causes than white women are. Four times. A University of Virginia study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences showed that doctors, in 2016, still believe black people possess supernatural tolerance for pain. Our pain just doesn't matter as much because our humanity doesn't either. The privilege of experiencing pain, and the privilege of that pain mattering, is exclusive to whiteness. Thank you so much. I really love that passage, um, although it makes me physically uncomfortable, to be honest. Um, Because I think it highlights two things about your book that are, to me, what your book is about, which is it's a memoir, yes, and it has the only thing missing from that particular section is probably a lot of the humor, you know, Mm -hmm. although I think some of the sensibility of your sense of humor shows through there. But what's amazing about your book is that it's a memoir, but it's also just about blackness and whiteness and masculinity. And I wonder, like, was that what you were thinking of? Is that what you were thinking you were going to write when you sat down to write a memoir? So the the original, um, I guess the original um, angle that I was going to go for was going to be very similar to the work um, that I do on Very Smart Brothers, um, where these very quick, reactive, snarky, voicey takes on race, on pop culture, on politics, on chicken wings, <laughs> on, on, on whatever. Um, and at VSB, um, the the pieces I write, you know, range from like 600 to maybe 1,200 words. And in the book, I would expand them to maybe 5,000. So, okay, so here's the rules of the the rules and regulations of the barbershop. Here's a chapter on that. Mm-hmm. Here's a chapter on white tears and the definition of it in his in the historical context of it. Here's the chapter on um on 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 I don't know the um the N word and, and, <laughs> and why you're able why we say it and why you're not able to say it. And so when I um first linked up with my agent, Tanya McKinnon, and she asked me if I had an idea for a book, I shared this with her. And she was like, well, you know, that's um, that's a good idea. But I, I think that I have a better one. I think that you should write a memoir. I think that you should have a narrative and have characters and have like a connectivity and a theme and have all of these things that people can relate to and feel and sit with and, and have to digest. And you can insert your racial and cultural and, and you know, societal insights into the memoir. 
And I'm I'm stubborn because I think most people who do this are. So I didn't immediately admit that she was right, even though I immediately <laughs> knew that she was right. Um, like I knew within like the first 30 seconds, but I, I, it took me about a week mm-hmm. to come back and say like, you know what? Yeah, your idea is a better one. So, so yeah, so the, the idea to do this was, um, I guess, was born in that conversation uh, three years ago, 2016. And, um, and now I did not know how deep I would go um, because, you know, as you as you alluded to earlier, this this book, um, very vulnerable, very transparent. Um, and some of the vulnerability and transparency still scares the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. That that, you know, and I am still shocked at some of the stuff I put in there and just the idea that, holy shit, I'm I'm on a tour talking to people about this, talking to like hundreds of people. People are having motherfucking book clubs <laughs> talking about the stuff that's in here. And these are some of these things are like my, my deepest anxiety, deepest subconsciousnesses, deepest neuroses. And and it's all it's all. Well, most of it is in there. And that just it, it is still just the idea of that being in there is still very surreal and scary. Yeah, that. It's definitely vulnerable and it's definitely um, it goes places where I you maybe one wouldn't stereotypically expect like a young black man to go. Um, Although maybe we should stay. It it actually explodes stereotypes. That's what I would say. And in really good ways. I did feel like a lot of these stories, a lot of these anecdotes are almost like the first sentence of a really uncomfortable conversation. Like, you saying some stuff that's, like, very real and very uncomfortable. And I have to, but, like, so there's, you know, you write about um, uh, scapegoating your best friend for uh, you having rented a bunch of porn movies (laughs) and and saying he didn't, he was the one who didn't return them. Mm -hmm. Um, You talk about how your marriage came to be, which is through an act of infidelity. Mm -hmm. And you talk about your uh, point guard, I believe, is it point guard at your pickup game? Yeah, one, one of my favorite guys to play with when, in this pickup basketball game I'm part of. Yeah, is a, is a Trump supporter. Yes. Yeah. So you reveal all this stuff, and it feels like you're revealing it for the first time. I mean, that's very vivid on the page. But mm. there's a part of me that was like, "Oh my fuck! Oh my god! Like he's going to have to talk to these people. He's going to have to like have a conversation about what he's written." Has that happened? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and you know, so yeah. I um, there's an entire chapter devoted to um, how my wife and I got together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my dad is probably the if I'm the main character, he's like the 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 main supporting character in the book. Um, there are a lot of my friends that you know, particularly in the second half of the book. That that um that are referenced and and experiences that we experience together that are that are included and and referred to. Um, even my ex, my, um, one of my ex girlfriends, um, is in there very prominently. Um, two of them actually, but one you know very 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 prominently towards the end of the book. And with each of these people, I um before I even sat down and actually wrote the book, you know, I had just an idea of where I wanted to go. I reached out to them 
and just let them know like, hey, I am I'm planning on writing this, I'm planning on telling this story. How do you feel about it? Are you okay with me doing this? And in each instance, you know, they they were fine with it. Um, and then after I actually wrote it, finished it, was done, then I showed them again. It's like, you know what, speak now. <laughs> Forever hold your peace. This is it. This is it. <laughs> it's going, it's going to the, you know, it's going to print. Did you know, in two weeks. So if you, you know, not, not in two, in, in, in three months. So, you know, if you, you know, if you have any reservations, you know, voice them now. And I, and I, I understand. I'll make whatever edits I need to. And, and again, everybody um, was fine with that. So, so I've, I've been, I've been fortunate enough to have um, a community around me that supports. Now, that said, with that basketball game mm-hmm. and those guys who I play with, I'm not as close to them. Like, these are guys that I'm cool with. These are guys that I hoot with. But these are not like, in, in I, and I explain in the chapter, these are not like my like my best friends. Mm. They're not people that I invite to my house for things. They're not people I text or, or call or, or hang out with outside of that context. So I haven't had that conversation with them, you know, and they know what I do for a living. Like they, they're all very aware of who I am and what I do and what I write about and, and whatever. But as far as the conversation about this chapter, I haven't had that. And I kind of want to return to that chapter, which is about your, your Thursday night pickup game and the Mm -hmm. fact that one of the best players is a, is a Trump supporter but I also want to kind of drill down a little bit more on this intimacy and vulnerability that you share. Um, I think it does read as though you were saying these things for the first time, which is is amazing and compelling. And it establishes a kind of intimacy with the reader that, I mean, I assume you wanted. But also, I will say, coming to this book as a well-meaning white person— I also felt like I understand better now. I feel like I, I both identify with a lot of what you're talking about and also understand how far I am from identifying. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. It does. And, you know, okay, so I, I am not Michelle Obama. <laughs> I, I, if there's any confusion, okay. I just I Your just voice wanted is to deeper. remind you, it's, I mean, remind I, you of that. Yeah. Right. And I'm bringing that up because, so I'm you know we we both wrote memoirs, mm-hmm. you know within the, within the last year, and no one gives a shit about my biography, really. Like no one's going to read this book to learn about. Okay, I wonder where Damon Young went to college, and I wonder why Damon Young decided to take this job instead of that job. Like no one gives a shit about that. Um, and so what? If I were to, you know, write a memoir, then I have to be like the vulnerability is where the meat is. Mm -hmm. It's where the connectivity is. And that's um, and again, that is also where the humanity is. And that's where I I believe some of the best humor also is. And and yeah, of course, you know, not everyone can can relate to or has had the experience 
of a 40-year-old ex-college basketball player who is Black and lives in Pittsburgh. (laughs) But everyone has experienced fear. Everyone has had some sort of a journey to get comfortable with their own skin. Everyone has experienced doubt, except for sociopaths, but they they don't (laughs) count. Um, Everyone has anxiety and angst and and, 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 and things that make them, like, deeply self-conscious. And again, although, you know, this book is, you know, a very, very black book, um, I, I feel like just diving into that also allows for the humanity to, I don't know, to, to be exposed to. And and again, those that vulnerability, that transparency, that's where that connectivity is. Where again, as you were saying, even if you can't necessarily relate to my experience, you can relate to feelings. You can relate to pressures. You can relate to the idea of, you know, um, there being like a certain expectation of who you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to look and how you're supposed to act, how you're supposed to walk, how you're supposed to talk, and maybe not meeting that expectation and filling the gap between yourself and the expectation with performance, mm-hmm. which is, you know, which is also a, a thread throughout the book, just the idea of performing and and faking and lying and just pretending and and just allowing this 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 veneer to be this sentient thing that exists in place of you. You said this is a very black book. And for sure it is, you know, filled with um ideas about blackness and you talking about your own uh, insecurity around your own blackness. Um and there's a lot in it about um the culture, like the specific, I guess, Pittsburgh culture that you grew up in and and that it's blackness. But I feel like I need to ask you, what about this book makes it so black? <laughs> well, I'm going to, um, I am going to, I guess, address a thing that you said in the question mm-hmm. about the insecurity about blackness. And I just want to provide a context for that. Okay. Because I think when... You know, very often when 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 black people, you know, um, when an insecurity about blackness is expressed by black people and this insecurity exists in culture, it often manifests as like them not feeling that they're accepted by black people mm-hmm. and, and them not feeling that they're black enough. And. My insecurity wasn't quite that. It was more, it was less connected to blackness and more connected to black maleness mm. and maleness mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, certain, you know, I was a star athlete in high school, went to college on a scholarship, basketball scholarship, and there are certain expectations of who you're supposed to be. If if you are that like for all right, so last night I stayed up last night to watch um, Portland and Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. and um, Damian Lillard hit this forty footer at the buzzer to win the game. One for the ages. 
Yeah, one for the ages. It's one of the, one of the most amazing shots I've ever seen, and def and probably one of the top five shots I've ever seen live. Mm. And um, after he made that shot, he was so fucking cool. He wasn't screaming. He wasn't hollering. He waved by mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to the Oklahoma City bench, and he walked to the end of the um, and he walked to his bench, stone face, just cool as fuck, without a care in the world. And there's a there's an image that's circulating the internet right now of him just like, just like with this face, like what? While everyone else around him is like just crazy and and screaming and hollering, he's just like staring at the camera, like, "Yep, I did that." And that's like, I feel like when I was growing up, I felt like that's who I was supposed to be, mm. like being that way in every context, being that way on a basketball court. Being that way in the classroom, being that way on the street, particularly being that way around girls, um, and I wasn't that, and I wasn't that way, and and so because I wasn't that way, and because I would see other people who I believed were that way, I felt like something in me was, I don't know, was like faulty. Like, why am I not as cool as everyone else seems to be? Mm. Why are these things bothering me? Why are these things affecting me? Shouldn't shouldn't my blackness have made me immune to anxiety, to doubt, to self-consciousness? And um and so I guess to answer your question about, <laughs> about what makes this um a black book, um it's it's very intentional with telling my story. In telling the stories of my parents, of my friends, of the neighborhood I grew up in, of what's happened to the neighborhood I grew up in. Um, and the language is very intentional. The references are very intentional. I don't do a whole lot of explaining. Mm-hmm. That's true. You know, I do some when it's necessary for for just an understanding of the story, but I use terms that... You're just going to have to use context clues to 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 understand them and to know what they mean. Um, <clears throat> and so I, I just like even the title. Okay, so the title was actually the second title of the book. Um, the original title, and this is a title the proposal was sold with, um, was "Nigga Neurosis." <laughs> <laughs> and oh, sorry. If you remember, in the intro to book, I talk about that. I I, I reference it and I mm-hmm. talk about it being like, you know, it, it, that term encapsulating this state of being mm-hmm. where you're wondering whether a thing happened, good or bad, um, because you were black. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we went out with that as the title on the proposal. We sold it. Everyone at HarperCollins loved it. Agent loved it. Editor loved it. And then my editor talked to her people at Barnes & Noble. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say. And her people at Amazon (laughs) who were like, you know, we we love Damon. (laughs) We're excited for his book. But, and we can carry a book with this title, but I don't know if we could if we could promote it or put like banner ads up with like nigga on 72 point font, you know, all over the website, all over the store. So, you know, maybe you should think of a different title. 
And um, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker came to me. I was actually working on some edits on a plane going to Essence Fest in New Orleans um, in July. And that just came to me. I immediately got off the plane. Well, I, when I got off the plane, I immediately Googled it just to make sure it wasn't already taken, like somebody's Twitter handle or, or something like that. Saw that it wasn't. And and boom, that ends up being the title of the book. And it's an obvious play on what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I just feel like if you're a black American, you you should know by now that respectability politics is a fraud, that that trying to assimilate to appease you know, some sort of manufactured notion of your humanity is not going to work. We've seen that. And so I, I just believe that, you know, in order to, like, survive and, and thrive even in America, then we have to embrace being black. Embrace it. Embrace blackness. Instead of trying to, I don't know, and, it, and instead of trying to appease and trying to assimilate and trying to just, you know, do all these different things to prove our humanity or prove the worthiness of our citizenship or prove that we belong here. It's like, you know what, fuck that. <laughs> and and I feel like the book is, you know, it, that title is a way of saying fuck that without actually saying it. I also had a thought while you were talking about um, what what it would mean to have this title and commanding blackness as your own thing, like owning it. Um, it's also about being able to define it, right? Because because mm-hmm. usually it's defined in opposition to whiteness. Mm-hmm. But if you claim it, then you get to define what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> We're going to agree. Okay. <laughs> that's that's great. <laughs> what you just said, I agree. <laughs> instead, of, instead of it being like this reactive thing, like your blackness is defined by how you're treated by white people or, you know, how, how, how much racism you've experienced or, or whatever. It's like, no, I mean, if, if there's, and the thing is that there's 40 million black people, then there's 40 million ways to be black in America. For years, we've all suffered through the work week, using weekends and occasional vacations as the time to heal and relax. But that doesn't cut it anymore. We want to feel good all the time. And that is why Fully exists. Fully transforms the way we feel at work with desks, chairs, and other tools to keep our bodies moving and our minds engaged. Fully's Jarvis is the best-reviewed standing desk online. Jarvis is gorgeous and surprisingly affordable, and it will change your relationship to work. Jarvis is adjustable. So you can switch positions, whatever your body tells you to do. My husband has one of these for his music studio, and he loves it. Fully, in general, incorporates movement into your day in order to get your blood flowing and your mind energized. They offer more than desks. They have a wide variety of active sitting chairs, depending on your style, whether you're a fidgeter or traditionalist or someone who is looking for a supported standing position. From an amazing standing mat that was inspired by walking barefoot in a forest to monitor arms that raise your computer screen to a position that puts you in an upright, healthy alignment, Fully has everything you need for an active office. And Fully wants to help you bring your full active self to work. 
Fully will be your partner in reimagining what your work can feel like. To transform your workspace, go to fully.com slash friends. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash friends. Fully, with desks, chairs, and other tools to get us moving. Fully transforms how we feel at work. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the... Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> Look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. I do want to say about your original title that people who read the book will realize how funny it is. Because you make a very persuasive case that white people should not use that word. So, I mean, I guess I, yeah. So would would you find humor in having to make all these, like, book sales people talk about the book? I I actually was was kind of looking forward to that. Like, I had this, <laughs> I had this, I had this fantasy in my head of, like, I don't know, somehow being interviewed by Anderson Cooper and, and watching him, like, like try to, like, trip over it. And, like, so, so, it, n- N-word? Ninja? Can I say ninja? <laughs> nin- ninja? Neurosis? Well, you got me. Like, I'm not, I'm, I, I am doing everything I can <laughs> to tap dance around it. Which yeah, is and, that its own you know, form? But is that its own form of like? I guess it's not racism, but you, you're making you're very appropriately making fun of white people being uncomfortable. But what do you want? <laughs> as far as that being able to say that word, I um. Sometimes I just want that. Like some like sometimes I I just. It it just makes me laugh, you know. Just <laughs> sometimes I I just want to do things that make me laugh, and there I I wish that there were more of a, and there might be like a greater or larger like intent or or, or meaning behind it. But sometimes I just you know I'm I'm like the four I'm like a four year old where <laughs> it should make me laugh, so I'm going to do it. Um, and, and, you know, also, you know, as I was saying earlier about, I guess, the concept of intentionality, mm-hmm. um, you know, in regards to, to blackness and, and the language, you know, the language I use, the language I will, the language that I'm allowed to use and the language that belongs to us, that's a part of that intentionality. Mm-hmm. And in that chapter where I um, Which I is very funny, by the way. Why. Excuse me. It's very funny. I just want to let people know that's one of the funniest chapters. Oh, oh, thank you. And in that chapter, you know, where I devote, you know, I guess maybe four or five thousand words to why I say that word and why white people can't. Um, you know, it's one one of the things that I think uh, white people maybe don't realize about that word is that there's no consensus among black people either like there's a there is an ongoing intraracial conversation about whether or not we should even use that word amongst ourselves and so with with that you know there is a consensus though that that white people can't 
Um, and the reason is that we've earned it. Mm-hmm. And it belong and it belongs to us now. And you make the observation that the party guest that uses that word, the fact that he uses it shows that he isn't as down with you all as he thought he was. Yeah, yeah. And so the chapter, you know, just to give a more of a context, the chapter begins with this story about this, you know, I call him a down-ass white boy who um, who's hanging out with, you know, a bunch of us. Um, he, he he played basketball. He got his hair cut at black barbershops. He even dated black women. He, he like, if there was, like, down, down-ass white boy bingo, he, like, he got every space mm-hmm. on it. Um, and so he was invited to a barbecue, and it's, like, shit talking to storytelling time. And in the middle of his story, he ref- he actually refers to three men who were sitting on his car as three niggas. Um, and the, I, the, the crowd was, like, like, we looked at each other, like, wait, that, did that just happen? Did he just, <laughs> like, what, what just happened? Did he just, like, we, we have, like, extensive guide books and curricula. And, and, and like, in manuals on what to do if called a nigger. Like, we know, okay, we, oh, he said nigger, okay, now we turn to Jason Bourne or John Wick <laughs> or whatever. It, it's, it's time for that. But white boy you're cool with says nigger while telling a story. It's like, okay, how, what is my reaction? What is my immediate reaction supposed to be other than to say you can't say that? I mean, it's not it's not the sort of offense where you, you know, you're angry enough to, to beat someone up about it. So how, <laughs> what do you say? How do you how do you respond to that? And so the chapter, I guess, dealt, dealt with some of that, some of the some of that response and, and also presented some really ridiculous scenarios <laughs> about possible responses to that. And ultimately, just, you know. You know, the takeaway was that, yeah, him saying that word is proof that he wasn't as down Mm -hmm. as we assumed that he was and that he assumed that he was. Because if he was, he would have known that that word is just off limits to him. He would have, you know, and this is a person who, again, he played basketball. He went to a predominantly black high school. So he's been around, been around us before. And he should, he should know. He should have known. Mm. That chapter is also interesting because it it does delve into masculinity as where as well as race and and I want to say I appreciate you by the way pointing out when I was asking about what makes this book black you pointing out that the masculinity part is also really important in this book that it's not just blackness and it's not about like I I feel like it's a much more subtle kind of combination of things right than just black enough, whatever that means. Um, but you point out in this chapter that you all were, you got caught up by the N-word, in a word the N-word with an A, or whatever, um, that you didn't say anything about the sexism of his story. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, he was telling the story about this, um, this black woman who lived in a housing project who he was sleeping with. And, you know, just referring to her with, like, this, with this, like, inherent disposability. 
And that didn't, that didn't set off any alarms. But him saying nigga did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and I, I feel like that's just, I don't know, that's a, that's a very unflattering um, just commentary on, on like, on, I guess, intersectionality and just how, for, for, for a lot of us, um, our racial critique is incomplete because it doesn't include women mm. because our gender our gender politic is so off like our racial politic is incomplete because our gender politic is so fucked up and you 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 can't you can't have a solid racial politic without also having a solid gender politic and and i, I just think that um you know so many of us haven't realized that and you write very openly about your path to get there, your journey, continuing journey, I assume. And so speaking of alarms, um, there's a chapter about how to make the Internet hate you. One of the most vulnerable chapters, I think. Not because it's about something so intimate in a way, but because it's about something so public. Do you want to describe what happened? We can. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I um I wrote this very awful, terrible response piece to um a woman's uh piece about uh sexual assault. And it was it was just victim blamey. It was it it was just it was awfully written, it was terribly conceived, the tone was off, the the language was bad, like everything about it. It was just an abject fail. And this was in 2011, 2012, around that time. And um, after I wrote that piece, and I wrote it to exist as like this, you know, irreverent, like counter and, you know, a conversation starter, not realizing how violent it was, but realizing it immediately when I saw the responses. Um, and the chapter talks about, you know, the first, you know, just the, just the context leading up to me writing that piece. And then the, the days following that piece and the responses and how my, my first response to the response was incredulousness where I, um, excuse me, I was, um, I, I I was upset that people were upset with me and not upset like embarrassed, but upset like, what right do y'all have mm-hmm. to say the shit about me? Don't you know who I am? <laughs> you know, I'm yes, I made a mistake, but shouldn't shouldn't I have the benefit of the doubt? Shouldn't, you know, sh- shouldn't that grant me some leeway? I'm I'm a quote unquote good dude. I mean, I'm not I'm not this person who does things like this, even though I was a person who did a thing, who did that. And, you know, as I, um, as I stay in that chapter, that experience gave me, I guess, uh, among the many things it gave me was a, a better understanding for why 
people's apologies. You know, public public figures, celebrities, whatever, do or say something fucked up, and then they apologize a day, a day later, and the apologies are always bad. <laughs> They're always. You they know what? always suck. All I, Like 100% of the time. When it's like a day later, they're always bad. Mm-hmm. And um, and I and I just believe the reason for that is because it's insincere. They're apologizing because they know they're supposed to. I'm sorry I made you mad. I'm sorry I made you mad. Yeah. I'm sorry if I offended anyone. Um, you know, but they're not my intention. Thing, also, it's usually a lot about intention. Right. Yeah. Like the apology is like, I didn't intend any bad things. Yeah. And and that's what, and the thing is, is like, if they did the thing on Monday, then whatever was inside of them that made them do the thing on Monday, it's not going to go, that's not going to be gone by Tuesday. Like that, it's still, it's still there. And, and very often when you get that sort of response your first response to people's outrage is like is defense yeah i wanted to say like the reason why i found that chapter so vulnerable is not necessarily cuz you you know you write about the outrage it's that you're honest about your response to it right that you did have a period of feeling like you were the victim of feeling like don't people understand i'm a good guy and that you had to go through that to get to a different place yeah. And I think that's of interest to me and maybe listeners of this show especially because we talk a lot about how how we might communicate with people who do things or say things that are hurtful. And it's sort of an ongoing kind of conversation about do you shame them or do you reach out to them? And to me, your story about the internet piling onto you suggests that one of the ways that being, I don't know if shamed is the right word, but being loudly made aware of how you hurt somebody can open a door. I mean, I, you know, this may not be the most popular thing to say out loud, but I think shame works. And <laughs> the, the right, in the, in, it, and again, in the right context, with the right subject, the right person, shame definitely works. Um, it worked on you. It worked on me because after that, initial period of defense where I'm like, you know, fuck these people for saying these things about me. They don't know me. Then that 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 kind of went away. And I just felt just deeply embarrassed and shame. And and also hurt that I hurt so many people. That people, you know, who who came who would come to VSB for for, you know, these like tongue in cheek takes on on pop culture and politics and even dating relationships and sex were presented with this with this piece that was a you know a, again it was a very violent piece mm-hmm. and that shame and that embarrassment eventually also transmuted into just a want to not be the sort of person who does a thing like that and not be the sort of person who creates work like that or has a platform like that. It's like, I I just, I don't want to 
be that. I don't want to be seen as that. I don't want to do that to people. I don't want to be known as that. So what do I need to do to fix this? What do I need to do? What do I need to interrogate about about myself, about my relationships, about my 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 thoughts and my actions and my intents? Like what what do I need to fix? Um, in order to to get to a place where instead of causing harm, I'm 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 preventing it. We all want to do the right thing to keep our bodies healthy in the long run. But even if we try really hard to eat kale salads and drink green smoothies, we are still most likely not getting all of the essential nutrients we need on a daily basis. Enter Ritual, the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Well, the ritual that's for women is for women. Ritual's Essentials for Women has the nutrients most of us don't get enough of from food in all their clean, absorbable forms. No shady additives or ingredients that can do more harm to your body than good. Two easy-to-take capsules provide nine nutrients you need to support a strong foundation for your health. I recently started using Ritual again. I won't get into, like, there was a pause, I started using again. And really, I, I know this is, I, I repeat this whenever I do the ad, but it is a joy to take them. They are minty fresh. They look beautiful. As a part of your morning routine, they're a little happy making thing, a little, little something to perk you up in the morning that is perfectly legal and isn't caffeine. From D3 to omega-3, Rituals Essentials for Women helps fill gaps in a women's diet. Their no-nausea capsule design is gentle on an empty stomach, and there is a mint tab in every bottle to keep things fresh. Not just the things tasting minty, the things it smells minty too. So you don't get that fishy aftertaste that is common with most omega-3s. For obsessive label readers, Rituals' vegan-friendly, sugar-free, gluten-free, and allergen-free ingredients and their sources are out there for the whole world to see. And Ritual is delivered, and a subscription is easy to start. It's easy to snooze, as I did. It's only a dollar a day to have all the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month, no strings attached. Better health doesn't happen overnight, and right now Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off for the first three months. Fill the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women, a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. Visit ritual.com friends to start your Ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash friends. This episode is brought to you by Hask. Hask hair care products are used on more Hollywood film and TV sets than any other brand. Hask offers high-performance formulas at affordable price points, including shampoos, conditioners, deep conditioners, shine oils, and dry shampoos that are designed to treat and repair all hairstyles and made from high-quality ingredients sourced from around the globe. Hask is also all about your second day hair. With its new collection of Hask dry shampoos, you are covered no matter what type of hair you have. Hask offers four lightweight dry shampoos, biotin, coconut, charcoal, and chia, all of which provide long-lasting absorption and leave your hair fresh and clean, even if you skip a wash. Or like me, your hair is like super fine and dry shampoo helps give it a little body, even if it's not dirty. Each Hask dry shampoo is formulated with rice starch, which hydrates, nourishes, and softens hair, treating it while extending the life of your blowout or reviving your post-gym dew. Hask sent me a bunch of stuff 
it was like this full, enormous box of like all these different kinds of shampoo and dry shampoo and conditioner and hair masks. And in my life, it's just me and my husband, and we both actually have the same exact type of hair, which is super fine. <laughs> and so what I did with this box of stuff is I sent it to my in-laws and my sister-in-law and her three girls and my other sister-in-law and my mother-in-law. It's like the most women I know living like within, you know, half a mile of each other. And I scored way points by sending to them. And then also they love it. And also they all have different types of hair. So I knew it would be appreciated. They had all these different types of stuff. Um, So like my uh, niece that has super fine hair, well, she's covered like I'm covered. I have another niece that has like thick wavy hair and she's covered. Um, My uh, one of the people that I've mentioned colors her hair and she's covered. Um, So I can attest to the the quality of all of these products, even though me personally, I only have the one kind of hair. All house formulas are free of aluminum, sulfates, parabens, phthalates, and gluten. I don't know why you would have gluten to begin with, but they're gluten-free, while formulated to meet the needs of your specific hair type. They're also cruelty-free, and because of their ingredient-inspired fragrances, they smell incredible. Dry Hask Dry Shampoo for yourself. You can find it on Amazon, and you'll save 15% when you use our special coupon code at checkout. It is 15WFRIENDS. That's 15WFRIENDS to save 15% off Hask Dry Shampoos at Amazon.com. And for more information on Hask's complete line of hair care solutions, please visit HaskBeauty.com. And we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. I have so many thoughts. <laughs> um, one, I want to take whatever it is inside you that caused that connection and like bottle it and then like pour it over other people. Because I do think that's not, I think it's a rare response to go from shame to self-examination. Although the official position of this show is also that shame works. But it it seems like you know, most people, when I see people getting piled on on the internet, they don't they don't then take a minute and be like, hmm, I wonder what I did wrong. Like if 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 people responded that way to internet pylons, like there'd be no more conservative columnists at the New York Times. You know, like <laughs> they would have all changed their mind. Like Brett Stevens would have changed his mind about stuff by now. Um, so I think that's really amazing. I kind of want to know what is it inside you that was able to make that particular connection. And then the other thing I want to point out, in in case people didn't hear this, is that it's a really important part of that story is where you do the work of of interrogating, am I a good guy? Or is it or or is that not maybe the right way to think about this? Well yeah, I, I just, you know, in in the chapter um delves into this a bit more, but I, I just had a had a progressive epiphany that being a good guy just didn't matter mm-hmm. and and I'm saying good in, in quotations because good at least how we define good or how men often define good means that you don't do shit it just means that you you know that you do the bare minimum that you crossed your t's and you dotted your eyes um, but you're not actually an active. 
and you're, you're intent. Not, you're not like an active human. You're not like an active citizen. You're just you're just there. You you might as well be a fucking futon. <laughs> um, like you're you're not doing anything to move the needle. You just exist as a person who defines their goodness by things that you haven't done. Like oh, I I I haven't gone to prison or I haven't beaten a woman or I haven't I don't know. I don't know. I haven't stolen juice from the store or, or whatever the fuck. And it's like, yeah, that's that's great. But you haven't done those things, but that that doesn't mean anything. And I I don't know. It, it I I stopped wanting to be good and started wanting to be worthy. Mm. And worthy of the support, worthy of the friendship of the women in my life, the love, um, the fandom that I had on VSB. I wanted to, I don't know, I felt like I had to earn it. And I felt like I had to earn it back. And I and I still feel like I am like that that that's not done. Mm. You know, and I don't know if it'll ever be done. Like it's just it's an ongoing, you know, it's an ongoing evolution, I think, where you're just I don't know. You, you just, as I said before, and um, and we mentioned before, we you know, Kesse Lehman's a mutual, mutual friend, and I remember him saying, I forgot where or how or what meaning he said this, but about reducing harm, and I think that's that is such a great way mm. of of encapsulating just that feeling where you just, you know, you come to a place where you recognize that you've done harm. And you don't want to do that anymore. And you also want to actively reduce it. You want to actively be a force of good. Whatever whatever that means. Even while recognizing that you you still have your own biases and blind spots and prejudices and, and because we all do. Mm. But um I don't know, you, you just get to a place where you just want to do better. <laughs> and 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 the thing is the reason I don't really like it <laughs> when I talk about this chapter and particularly when I talk about this chapter with women and people and sometimes response is, you know, hey, you know, how, how can we take what you feel and, and like just pollinate I was, I figured out, with it? I actually figured out who I would give it to, Joe Biden. <laughs> If I could take okay, this yeah, chapter Joe, yeah, yeah, you could definitely use it. and give it to Joe Biden, like um, squeeze out whatever's in it and then put it in Joe Biden's breakfast cereal. That's what I would do. But yes, I understand like, that's annoying. Go, please, please. Yeah. Please. And, and I guess the reason the reason why um, or one of the reasons why is like, you know, I'm, I'm 40 years old. And now this this experience, um, you know, I wrote that piece. Um, I was, what, 31, 32 um, around that age, um, I'm, I was a grown up, you know, like, and, and I guess, you know, once you get to the place where, okay, I want to, I, I don't want to cause harm. I want to actively, you know, be a force of good. Then it's, then the next question, and this is a question I am still grappling with. And I think a lot of us still are, it's like, what the fuck took me so long? <laughs> <laughs> why why couldn't I've had this this epiphany or this this progression when I was 20 mm. or 22 I mean and 
you know, and it's not like people don't do it because women do, you know. Um, and and I, I just think that, you know, you could blame patriarchy. You could and 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 that matters. That matters how we're socialized. That matters, you know, just uh just all of the, you know, historical and, and, and just current just constructs that 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 influence how we how we live and how we interact with each other. But I just I don't know, I just feel like we shouldn't take so long to get to where we eventually <laughs> do. Well, I don't know. I think the fact that so many people come to you and say, you know, can we bottle this chapter shows, I I speak, you know, I can only really speak for myself, but that at this point, I just want people to have the revelation. I mean, the fact that it's taking so long is also is a problem, but, and we need to change things so that people grow up differently. But, you know, Joe Biden's 70, whatever, you know. <laughs> and he's he does not get this part, right? Does not at all get it. And um maybe he never will. And I um Yeah, Joe. I you know, I <laughs> We don't have to talk about Joe Biden, but Yeah, we we he's he's just an example of yeah. how we give people so many chances yes. because they're white and because they're male. Um and and he's even had chance like he could have very very easily after you know the um I forgot her name um who wrote the piece for New York Magazine about his yeah I'm um, blanking on the he, name he too could, but he could, yes. he could have just very easily to say you know what I I'm sorry <laughs> I did these things um and not joked about it yeah yeah like that like the the blueprint is not hard. <laughs> just, just take this. All you have to do is just take it seriously. That, like that's 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 like the bare minimum. Just just take it seriously. He could even not mean it, honestly. Like <laughs> just just at least perform. And actually, you know what? I know we're running out of time, and I want to talk a little bit about performance because you said that is a theme in the book. So the theme that I saw developed in the book, and it, it actually does kind of wrap around to, to talking about masculinity and even Joe Biden, um, is the difference between self-consciousness and self-awareness. And I don't know if I'm using the, the official term, so allow me to you know explain what I think I mean. Like, you write a lot about being self-conscious, and that's the, that's the part that I think is really easy to identify with. Like, I totally also, you know, have had the alien-in-my-own-skin kind of sensations and also felt like I have to figure out, like, how to behave in this particular situation, you know, because I didn't get the rule book that everyone else got the rule book. And, and that's the source of a lot of humor in the book, too. Um, but the chapter about the internet hating you, I think, shows the transformation between being self-conscious and thinking about yourself all the time and being self-aware, which to me is understanding how you move through the world. Like, you stopped thinking about women as codes to crack, right? Like, that's self-consciousness to me. And you started thinking about the ways that your behavior had an impact on women. And to me, that's self-awareness. 
Yeah, I, I I see the distinction in that that I actually never thought of it that way, but that that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, and the self consciousness still hasn't like that's still there. <laughs> <laughs> like it's 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 um this book is was almost like an act of therapy or former therapy for me too because I've I've always been a pretty severe introvert. Um, like if you are into like the Myers Briggs, I'm an INTJ, which is like the introvert introvert. <laughs> um, and so putting all this in the book and like just putting it out there and, and, and the book has my fucking picture on the front like that wasn't my idea <laughs> to have like my face on the cover of the book that wasn't that wasn't my idea but you know it was it's a great design and I was like yeah that 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 works um, and and so the self-consciousness is just the part of me mm-hmm. like I, I, I don't think I'm ever going to be um less self-conscious i think that that right now i found that the best thing is just to lean into it and and not pretend that and and stop pretending that i'm not and and allow that to just to almost like be my thing like be my brand (laughs) in a way (laughs) um and the self-awareness i think i well and I think that that actually connects to self awareness, where it's like, you know what, this is this is who I am. And once I like, okay, this is who I am, and and just be fine with that, and then I could actually get out of my own head, get out of my own thoughts, and start just really thinking about how I exist in the world, and how that existence impacts other people, particularly women. I really appreciate you talking to me. Oh. Th- Thank you for having me on. Oh, I mean, I really love the book. I'm, I hope it's a bestseller. You deserve it. I will do my part to, to make that happen. Well, well, thank you. Thank you for that. It is, it is like just a very, like, I mean, I think I said what I think, which is that um, I think it's really cool and funny and personal, but also, you know, about who we are today. And then also it had that weird, I had that weird bifurcated emotional reaction of both distance and closeness. Which is the right one, I guess, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm a fan of the show The Expanse, a fan of the books, too. And there's a character in in the books and in the series called Detective Miller. And he has a catchphrase, doors and corners. Watch out for doors and corners. Even after that character, spoiler alert, leaves the series— that catchphrase kind of comes around a lot for one of the characters, and he uses it, you know, to, to remember his friend. And also, you know, it's sort of a metaphor for places where you're vulnerable. Doors and corners. Got to watch out for doors and corners. I was walking to the studio today, and I actually I started to think about how that phrase applies to me. Like, what are my doors and corners? Where am I vulnerable that I forget about? And I realized, anniversaries and holidays, those are my doors and corners. They are the vulnerable places that I forget about. For example, the 20th of March is the anniversary of my last suicide attempt. The 23rd of March is my sobriety date. The 27th of April is the anniversary of my mother's death. And of course... Mother's Day. 
I always get squirrely this time of year, but nine times out of 10, I forget my doors and corners. And instead, I get focused on the stupid everyday shit that I think is upsetting me and that voice in my head that wants me to believe that all the bad things I am feeling are my fault. And if I could just do that stupid everyday shit perfectly, then I would feel fine. What I tell myself when I'm feeling like that, what my disease, I sometimes say, is telling me, is it's too late. You'll never change. Why bother? This actually relates back to my mom. Like I said, she died in late April. A year and a month after I got sober. The last time I visited her, I was able to show her my year coin. And I sometimes frame the tragedy of her death as being robbed from having time with her when we were both sober. And I get angry at her for believing it was too late because even a day of being able to really connect with her would be more than I got. But that's not actually what I can learn from her. What I can learn from her is that it's never too late for me and that I can change and that believing I can change is an open door and not a destination. Believing I can change is what gets me through the door, helps me avoid the corner. And today, right now, what I really wish for is both less and more than more time together. I wish she had gotten a chance to believe the best about herself. I wish she had known I love her. But even more than that, I wish she had loved herself. My Mother's Day gift to her is to continue to try to do that myself. To believe I can change. To know it's never too late. To love myself enough to get to those beliefs, even if I don't believe them today. Take care of yourselves. See you next week. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. 
NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.